And please pray with me. Uh, Lord, um, our service is punctuated with prayer in no small part because uh, we never want to get too far along without expressing uh, our dependence upon you. And so, Lord, we um, want to express that now. Uh, perhaps no, no one more than me, um, because uh, we would all be in, in uh, terrible shape if we were to rely upon, you know, the competence of a, of a speaker. Uh, instead, Lord, we want to look to your Holy Spirit, uh, who uh, applies the word to our heart, who attends to it, who uh, does the work in us throughout the week that Jesus would be known and seen and that you would get glory in our lives and in our work and in every part of who we are, that your name would be made great. And so, Lord, we, uh, it is our desire to grow, uh, and we pray that that growth that happens here would redound to your glory out there, uh, that many would come to see you and know you and believe. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, the uh, British Natural Environmental Research Council launched an online contest to name a newly completed $300 million ship that was uh, designed for scientific expeditions. And with 125,000 entries, more than three times uh, the number of what came in as the second place entry, the winner was clear in a landslide. The winner was the name Bodie McBoatface. One London newspaper man summed up that development in this way. He said, the people of the internet have spoken emphatically, and they've spoken like a five-year-old. <laughs> apparently, the UK science minister felt exactly the same way, dismissing the contest and ordering that the boat be launched as the RSS David Attenborough, because he understood the importance of the name. He understood that the name must reflect the purpose for which the ship was constructed, the cause for which it was commissioned, the country that it represented. Now, we're, we've come to the third commandment this morning, and it has to do with the name, the weightiness of the name of the Lord. And it can seem, I think, at this point in the text, you know, we've been in the Ten Commandments now, we're, we're on our third week, and... Um, this can seem like something of a pivot point. The first two commands, you know, I think came at us in such a way that uh, you felt like they were demanding your entire heart. You know, that there was sort of an existential quality to these commands. And now that we're on to the third command, you know, having focused on the heart, now it can seem like we're pivoting to the habits. I can remember the movie The Blues Brothers making a strong impression on me in sort of a third commandment way. Uh, when um, Jake and Elwood, the protagonists of the stories, the, the Blues Brothers themselves, you know, heard that the orphanage they were raised in was in financial trouble, they decided they were going to help out. Um, so they go back to see the nun that raised them, uh, whom they affectionately called the Penguin. And as they're sitting in these little desks, you know, and the Penguin is explaining to them, you know, their predic her predicament, um, you know, one of them says a curse word. And immediately, 
you know, the nun whacks him over the head with a ruler. And then when the other one sees the, him getting whacked with a ruler, he says a curse word. And then it just goes back and forth and it's out of control where by the end of it, you know, they've both been thoroughly beaten and thrown down the stairs. And you're kind of sitting there going, you know, if they would just watch what they say. Stop cursing. Stop blaspheming. Keep the third commandment, right? But in reality, we're still contending with the heart. And as we do, um, we need to make the command, we, we need to neither make the command stricter than it actually is, nor do we need to imagine it's not as searching as it actually is. So I want to spend our time this morning really considering two things. First, the greatness of God's name, and then considering what it looks like for us to glorify his name. The greatness of the name, and then obeying this commandment by glorifying his name in our lives. Um, now, for starters, we need to see that the command isn't to never use God's name. You can't read the Bible without using God's name. It appears over 7,000 times in the Bible. The command is to never misuse it, to never take it in vain, which means taking it up as if it were meaningless or empty, right? Now, when it comes to breaking the command, what first comes to mind are just kind of the obvious things, right? The blatant sort of Blues Brothers way we do this and cursing his name, using his name as a curse word. And yet, when you step back and look at how broadly this command is applied in the Bible, it's kind of breathtaking. Jeremiah 23 says that those who, those who use God's name to get spiritual authority for themselves by claiming false visions or making false claims to speak on God's behalf are prophesying lies in the name of the Lord. They're breaking the third command. In Leviticus 22, mishandling God's holy things dedicated to his name and worship is identified as a violation of the third command. Malachi calls out the priests leading worship services in such a way where they're just kind of flippant and going through the motions and cutting corners are identified as those who are breaking the third commandment, profaning God's name by worship in vain because it's in the name of the Lord. And, and to get at why this concern for honoring God's name is applied to everything from how we speak to how we conduct ourselves to how we worship, I think it's helpful to go back to the place where God's name is first revealed in Exodus 3 that we looked at a few months ago where God speaks to Moses from the burning bush. And you, you might remember that Moses said to God at that place, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? His main concern had to do with God's name. And God answered him saying, I am who I am. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And we pointed out when we looked at it a few months ago that, that it's a curious name. It's, it's connected to the Hebrew verb for to be, which is to say that God reveals himself as the God that is, sovereign and self-sufficient. And the implications of that are quite powerful. It means, you know, for starters, that he's not named by us. He's not defined by us. He is in no way, in any other way, it's sort of curated by us for our purposes, right? To the contrary, he is the one with whom we all must contend as the creator and God, as, as I am that I am. 
That means we are never at liberty to manipulate his name for our aims, but are called to honor him as he is for who he is. Now, the importance of, of the name as it relates to the person, I think, is probably not as foreign a concept as we might imagine. Okay, there, 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 there's a three-letter name in my life, that name being Kit, my wife, um, that unlocks a whole world for me. You know, a whole life of experiences and emotions that no other name represents. You know, if you were to speak ill of my wife, we would have big problems, right? Because that name and, and many others in my life are, are not just empty signifiers, they're saturated. They're, they're saturated, they're weighted with meaning because attached to them is a world of relationships and joys and sorrows and experiences that are inextricably bound up to that person and to my life. You know, and, and what's so powerfully true in that way, and I know you're probably thinking of those names yourself, what's, what's so powerfully true in the familial arena, it shows up in other arenas as well, like in the commercial arena. Uh, corporations, right, are famously, famously invested in and fiercely protected of their names and their brands. Billions of dollars are spent every year enlisting armies of people in the service of nothing other than protecting and cultivating and representing their name and their brand well. And, and of course, if the name or the brand is ever misused, if it's ever misrepresented in any way at all, what's going to happen? There's going to be hell to pay. There will be lawsuits and armies of lawyers and they will you know, unleash the, their, the full power of their corporation in protection of the name. Because what is unthinkable and intolerable and to be avoided at all costs is that, the, is that name, that brand, that image would be what? Taken in vain. Represented as something that's not empty, purposeless. Because it means something. So whether it's people or products, we care about and are connected to the integrity and the truth of what names represent. And that is why there is such zeal in the Bible that God's name would be exalted because of who he is. That's why, you know, a minute ago we prayed the Lord's Prayer, you know, and the first order of business in that prayer is the petition that God's name would be what? Hallowed recognized and honored and upheld as holy. All of that speaks to the greatness of God's name. But then, you know, the question is, what does it look like for us to give glory to that name, to obey this command? And I've really kind of wrestled with this this week in terms of getting my arms around this. And, and here's what I've come up with. I want to talk about bringing glory to God's name. We do that when we take it up with a concern for truth, when we take it up with sobriety, and when we take it up with integrity. First, we're, we're, we're called to honor God's name in truth, which is to say we don't dishonor it by associating it with that which is false. Uh, of course, there's formal ways we're called to do that. If you're ever sworn into office or called to give testimony in court, right? So help me God. We, we honor that office. We keep that oath uh, in God's name by telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? But, but I think in our lives, most of the action comes in sort of the day-in, day-out, informal ways in which we live and speak about the Lord 
and our relationship with the Lord and the things of the Lord. Honoring the truth of who he is in, in word and deed. Um, now, the, the gospel calls us not just to a formal relationship with the Lord, but, but, but definitely to an intimate one, right? One in which we have all kinds of freedom. Freedom to cry out and lament and bring complaints and tears and brokenness and, and our lack of understanding and our frustration with life and our desires. All of that, we bring it to the Lord. You know, I want to say the Lord welcomes that and he delights in that. Because by faith in Christ, we're what? We're his children. And children come with what? Mess. And yet, you know, with all that said, I, I think we are susceptible to adopting a stance in our relationship with God that isn't true to who he is. And let me try to illustrate that. You know, I, I understand, for example, that um, we can get angry with God. I've heard people say that to me. I'm angry with God. Um, you know, but, but I want to be able to identify that as part and parcel of our mess and not a posture that we should welcome as good or right or honoring to his name for the simple reason that being angry with God is predicated on the idea that God's done me wrong, which is utterly untrue to who he is. He never does you wrong. So yes, you know, the Lord's ways may be inscrutable to, inscrutable to me. And yes, I'm, I'm having to endure trials and troubles, which I don't understand, even though the Bible tells me that they ultimately work toward my good. But I cannot, I'm not at liberty to simply settle into as a posture, as a thing that's okay to just be angry with God. And at the same time, honor his name because he's perfectly and eternally good and just and righteous and merciful. Some have gone so far to say that it's important to our personal well-being to forgive God. You know, again, which is to claim something utterly untrue about God, which is to say that in some way and somehow he has committed sins which require my forgiveness. Right? We dishonor his name. It's not true to who he is. That is to take his name in vain. It is to profane it because it's untrue of him. It's not to say we don't work through it. The same goes when I attach God's name to my opinions, my plans, my ideas, my culture, my politics. So, you know, so that if others find themselves at odds with any of those things, it doesn't mean merely that they have a differing opinion or another idea or another way of thinking about it or a different political take or affiliation. I am saying, you know, in some way or other, I'm saying if you're not on my side, you're not on the Lord's side. Which again is to, is to take God's name in vain because however righteous we might imagine our opinion or our politics or whatever project we're attached to to be, apart from God's holy word, there is no human endeavor that perfectly reflects his holy character and will. In this side of heaven, right, we're always falling short. We're always failing. We're never 100% true to who the Lord is. So our calling is, is not to get God to conform to me and my plans and my opinions and my politics, but instead it's the utter reverse. It's, it's how are you calling me to conform to you? He's always seeking us to conform to him, to his good and holy will revealed in his scriptures. And we dishonor him when we attempt to co-opt him for our causes, to shoehorn him into our agenda, to conform him to our ends, right? Have mercy. For the same reason, we ought to be extremely cautious, I think, in casually saying things like, God told me to do this. 
or God wants us to do this or that. Of course, the Lord guides and leads and assures and confirms, and yet our calling is always circumscribed by the, the prayer we pray here every week, your will be done. So that we're never at liberty to use God's name as validation for our plans and purposes. Do you see that? Phil Riken, uh, the Bible scholar and pastor, put it this way in his commentary on Exodus. He said, a more serious way to break the third command is by using God's name to advance our own agenda. Some Christians say, the Lord told me to do this. Or worse, they say, the Lord told me to tell you to do this. This is false prophecy. God has already said what he needs to say to us in his word. Of course, there is an inward leading of the Holy Spirit, but this is only an inward leading and should not be misrepresented as an authoritative word from God. And look, pastors like me, church leaders like me, are infamous for doing this very thing, for communicating to people like you ministry plans, our decisions, our initiatives, our capital campaigns, you know, in exactly that way. You know, saying things like, you know, we need you to join us in this and that and, you know, this or that. And, you know, we really hope you'll be obedient to the Lord as we take this on. And, you know, look, while, while, we, while we must say and must pray that, you know, say that we've prayed that we've sought the Lord's will together, that we have a sense that this is the right direction for the church at such a time as this. You know, and even as God has vested elders in the church with real spiritual authority, it doesn't extend so far as to claim divine authority for our plans and projects. It just doesn't. But instead, you know, it is our duty to, to always take the posture of claiming divine dependence praying that the Lord would be in our plans or doom them to failure if he's not, right? And, and you, might, you might be able to tell I'm taking some pains here to make these distinctions, which I recognize can be a little bit subtle, but they are meaningful. They're very meaningful because church leadership is never at liberty to bind your conscience. The Lord's the Lord of the conscience. We trust him to act upon your conscience through the word, you know, it's not, we're not at liberty to bind your conscience or in any way impede what our confession defines as your free access to God and your yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. That means when we put any appeal to you, before you, we're called to do it in such a way that doesn't create, you know, any obstacle that would impede your free access to God and the gospel. You know, believe in Jesus and get on board with our capital campaign. You know, suggesting, you know, in, in ways that very often, and again, we're infamous, that are very subtle, often, but ways that suggest that, that you need a little bit more than your faith in Christ to be in right standing with him. We profane God's name when we do that. And that's so critical for this simple reason that dishonoring God's name always does more than just dishonor God's name. It always hurts people at the same time. Dishonoring God's name hurts people. And, and I'm sure, I have no doubt that among us uh, are people who have wounds, maybe some that you are still working through, and God bless you that you're even here, you know, that originated 
with something being said or done or demanded of you in a church setting in the name of God, which wasn't true to who he is, which wasn't true to his good and holy character and will. You know, there's a reason the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, you know, the, the, the Bible for counselors and psychiatrists, there's a reason there's an affliction in there called ecclesiogenic neurosis, church-based crazy, because we do this. It will make you crazy and it will hurt you and it profanes God's name. So, so when it comes to human plans, you know, sincere, important, and consequential as they may be, we may claim divine dependence, a sense of divine prompting, a humble posture of relying upon divine guidance, looking to divine providence, but we can't claim divine authority. God is in possession of that through his word. So we're called to represent his name truly. We're also called to give glory to God's name with what I'm calling sobriety. Um, it's the best word I could come up with. It just means that we are never unconcerned with his honor. We take his name really seriously. And again, that's not to say that we don't speak of and relate to the Lord in very loving and spiritually intimate ways. You know, I used to pray with this guy who regularly when we would pray, he would call God daddy. And you know, it's like, if you want to watch a, a Presbyterian pastor kind of go into some spasms, you know, it's like, ugh. But, you know, I, I came to really embrace it because it's coming from this place, so I'm invited. I have a Father in heaven. I've got an Abba Father, you know? I mean, Jesus not only invites that, I think he urges us to relate to him, you know, in, in that kind of way. You know, we did it earlier when we prayed to our Father. In, in Jesus' day, that was scandalous, to call it God our Father. And yet... We're called to, to a relation toward him that honors his person and work with a posture of reverence and awe. I was really struck, you know, last weekend we commemorated the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and I, I, I sort of, you know, watch, I don't know how many different news channels and coverages and internet articles and videos and, you know, just all kinds of stuff in the media, but what, what, what ran through all of it, you know, is... It's not just what was said, but how things were said. There was a kind of solemnity commensurate with those events. Utterly appropriate. No one was making 9-11 jokes. We're dealing with weighty things, serious things. And there's a saying that everywhere the Queen of England goes, there's the smell of fresh paint. And the reason for that is the presence of the queen is a big deal. You, you prepare for her presence. You conduct yourself in her presence in such a way. I think she even has a crew of people who explain to you how you are to conduct yourselves when you're in her presence. But you know, all of that is, is to convey an honor that's fitting to who she is and what she represents, right? There's sobriety there. There's seriousness. There's a weightiness commensurate to her presence. And you know, it's interesting. We get some sense of this idea in one of the places Jesus taught his people to pray, um, where he gave us this instruction. He said, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Um, now, Jesus isn't telling us how to pray perfectly. Um, you, know, you know, no one is more thankful than me for Romans 8.26, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray as, we're ought, as we ought. The Spirit himself intercedes with groanings too deep for words. Thank God for that. 
You know, I don't think Jesus cares at all about eloquence in prayer, but he cares a lot about emptiness in prayer. Empty phrases. You know, what, what would, could well be translated? Vain phrases. You know, the little, uh, you know, that's to say that phrases that are frivolous or untrue in speaking about to or about God, that, that take him lightly. You know, the little town we lived in in Texas before we moved here happened to have produced, uh, I think the year we moved there, a, a Heisman winner, Heisman Trophy winner from this little high school uh, in, in the hill country in Texas. And, you know, they brought him back and had a big celebration for him at the high school stadium, and they brought up a pastor to, you know, get the event going. And, and he prayed this, you know, rambling prayer, thanking God for his smoking hot wife and praising God for this one particular football team, which, you know, half the crowd in the middle of the prayer started hooping and hollering about. The other half of the crowd started booing. Um, you know, in mid-prayer, he pivots from, you know, praying to God to, you know, praying to Johnny. It sounded like. He's like, Lord, we thank you for Johnny. And, and Johnny, we're just so proud of all you've accomplished and everything. And, you know, and, I, and, and one began to suspect that there was more than one person getting the glory, the laud, and the honor. You know, it, it was a prayer of empty phrases, vain phrases. It was frivolous. You know, and that frivolousness extends beyond, I think, how we pray as well. Um, you know, in using God's name as a, as a byword or as, worse, as a curse word. You know, let, letting his name leave our lips as some kind of flippant expression of outrage when we get cut off in traffic or stub our toe. You know, or reducing his name, you know, to just, you know, one more way to say we're excited about the last dessert we ate or the parking space we got in the shade outside the mall. You know, that kind of thing demonstrates, you know, little regard for the fact that he is the I am, that he is I am that I am, that he's the creator, the savior, the judge, the king, the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power. You know, and in the same way, we do this, I think, when we make light of or joke about the Lord or the things of the Lord. And, and look, I love a good joke. I love to laugh. I love nothing more than making fun of how ridiculous Presbyterians can be. You know, but there is a vast difference between laughing at our human folly and making the Lord the punchline of our jokes. Cracking wise about his word, his ordinances, his worship, his church, his work, his name, which scripture tells us were purchased with the price of his son's blood. That demands, I think, a level of sobriety. You know, when it comes to a lack of sobriety, look no further than the Christian t-shirt industry. You know, you will find t-shirts that say things like, well, I may not be perfect, but Jesus thinks I'm to die for. Or Jesus is coming, look busy. Or Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. Or, you know, riffing off a beer commercial with a picture of the cross that says, this blood's for you. And it's clever, and it gets a chuckle. But behind the humor is a mockery of the holy things of God. Jesus' incarnation, his crucifixion, his love for sinners, his return to judge the living and the dead. And, and not only are these not joking matters, you know, the effect of these things is, you know, 
we sort of have our inside jokes as Christians, even as we simultaneously alienate or confuse those who don't yet believe. And again, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's exhibit A of how dishonoring God's name hurts people. We should honor his name with sobriety. And finally, I believe this command calls us to glorify, honor God's name with, with integrity. And, and by integrity, I mean living in a state of undividedness, wholeness, uh, honoring God's name in such a way that we, that we know there's more to this than just obeying a law, but it actually calls us to live a certain kind of life. One in which making God's name great is evident in our life, in every aspect of it, in our work, in our family relationships, in our, you know, as, as we're standing on the sidelines of our kids' sports. You know, when you look at those who oppose Jesus, the wild thing is most of them were deeply religious. Uh, they were known and revered in their community as such. And yet Jesus regularly calls them out as those who worked very hard at maintaining an outward appearance of godliness, even as they denied its power. As people who, he says, honor me with their lips, but their hearts far from me. As people who look like whitewashed tombs, beautiful marble, the etching and the sculptures, but inside is a corpse. As those who look like something that they're not, as those who fundamentally lack wholeness, they're divided. There's no integrity. Jesus speaks again in Revelation, not just to individuals, but to entire churches with similar words to the church at Sardis, saying, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. It seems that we have a tremendous capacity to actually say the right words to go through the religious motions to sort of outwardly keep, you know, the barest implications of this law, even to the point of appearing, you know, like a church at Sardis, of being just like the hot place in town and you're thriving and you're alive and building's amazing, even as there's this sort of fundamental problem. Lack of integrity, a, a dividedness, a lack of wholeness, lives that aren't committed to the glory of God. You know, we began this morning by looking at where God revealed his name to Moses in Exodus 3 as I am that I am and, and saw there that because of the nature of who God is, it means first of all that, that we can never relate to him as one who must conform himself to us. But, but just the reverse, that our calling is to be conformed to him. And yet, you know, again, have mercy I can't even conform myself to my own best goals, much less to the holiness of the living God. I sin in word and thought and deed. I not only fail to give God the glory due his name, but, but regularly defame him in, our, in my life. But then, you know, 30 chapters after that first revelation to Moses, there's another meeting between God and Moses, and one again that centers on his name, but in a particular way, in such a way that, that his name isn't merely uttered to Moses as much as it is really unfolded before Moses. It's spread out in such a way that Moses and, and people like us who are reading this story would come to know and see greater vistas of the greatness of the glory of the living God. 
And it's interesting because Moses didn't ask for his name there. He probably figured he already knew it. He got it back in Exodus 3. And so he asked what, you know, for what he probably imagined was something else altogether, which you know, is that God would show him his glory. And God actually agrees to that. And he tells him, he goes, okay, I'll show you my glory. Now, you've got to jam yourself in a rock like a nuclear bomb's about to go off. And then, you know, my glory will pass by you. And at that particular moment, if you've been tracking with this book, you expect Sinai 2.0. Lightnings, thunder, smoke, trumpet blasts, darkness, earthquakes. But what we get instead is God revealing his glory by making all his goodness pass before him, proclaiming before him my name, the Lord. God's glory comes by way of hearing God's name proclaimed as the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but, by, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And, and I'm wondering, did you hear the name? Can, can we, you know, like Moses, take it in and, and hear it not only sort of uttered to us, but unfolded before us, the utter goodness of that name, and see that bound up in the name of God are these qualities of mercy and grace and slowness to anger and an abundant steadfast love and faithfulness and the forgiveness of iniquity and transgression and sin, even as his holiness is upheld and established perfectly. You see, those are qualities that do not exist in a vacuum, but find their fullness in relationship in relationship actually with sinful people in need of mercy and grace and slowness to anger and steadfast love and faithfulness. And, and what that means and what I want to tell you, if I can put it this way, is that God has chosen to bind his name to your name and my name and the names of all kinds of lawbreakers who put their faith in him it means that at the burning center of the glory and the greatness of God is his love for sinners like you and me. His love for those who profane his name, who take it in vain. John says in his gospel that he and many others saw God's glory. Glory he identified as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, and they saw it in the one who bore the name Jesus. A name that Luke says was given by the angels before he was conceived in the womb. The name that was before Abraham was. The name that means God will save his people from their sins. And that means that our hope is not in rule keeping. Our hope is in our Redeemer, our Savior Jesus. And it means that we keep this command. We honor God's name when we take up that name and relishing and relying on and recounting in word and deed the greatness of our saving God in and through the life and death and resurrection and ascension and reign of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to honor him. That's what it means to give him glory. That's what it means to make his name great, to, to show in our lives in word and thought and deed 
that God loves sinners. I've often wondered, you know, I've never been to a high school reunion, and, you know, nobody in my high school would have imagined I would become a pastor. And I've thought about, man, if I go back, it's just going to be, you know, interesting. And... But, I, but, but what would it look like to go, yeah, isn't it amazing? Grace of Jesus in my life. You know, what, you know what a mess I was. Can you see that? Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. See, these commands that demand sinlessness weren't given to drive us to the goal of sinlessness. They were given to drive us to the sinless one, to, to Jesus, to the Savior of sinners. And when your faith is in him, when you entrust your life to him, when you attach yourself fully to him, you will find that the one, you will find the one who has met all the demands for you in the law. One who actually did honor God's name and give it glory and never profaned it or took it up in vain for you. One who endured the wrath of God for sin that should have fallen on blasphemers like you and me. You will find that that God knows you and he knows you by name, that he loves you by name, that he has held your name in his heart since before the foundation of the world because your name is, as the hymn says, graven on his hands and written in his heart and written in the Lamb's book of life. And because he has graciously taken my name to himself, I'm able to take up his name so that the name of Jesus would radiate gloriously in every dimension of my life. Maybe never more so when I am demonstrating that I'm a big sinner, but guess what? I've got a big savior. So that he gets all the glory and the laud and the honor he is due for his glorious name. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, I thank you for meeting us in your word. Um, it's hard to preach on this and not repent. Got to repent. Um, it's your goodness that leads us there. I'm sorry for taking your name lightly, for using it in ways that advance my own agenda, for, you know, for trying to shoehorn you into my life and conform you to me. Uh, Lord, have mercy. Would you, um, by grace, uh, conform us to yourself? That's always better. We thank you for the greatness of your name. We want to exalt it and give you the glory that it is due. Lord, attend to us as we come to this table. Lord, would you uh, feed us here? This table is yet one more way that your name is made great, where we get a great, not just a glimpse of your glory, but we actually get to participate in it. Because you, you know, this is not the table for rule keepers. It's not the table for the sinless. It's a table for those who understand that we can't attain sinlessness. We need a savior. And we need a sustainer. And so, Lord, would you, again, turn us to Jesus here. For some of us, that's going to be the thousandth time, the millionth time. For some of us, it may be the first time. And Lord, we just glory in and revel in the reality that we are coming up here not um, having proven ourselves, but having put our faith in you. And Lord, we would ask that you would feed us here, that we would know that with, with each bite and with each drink, 
that you indeed are our life, that you are in us, that you are at work in us, that you are sustaining us, keeping us for yourself, sending us out into the world, bringing us back here uh, to the end that you would get glory. So attend to us here as we eat this meal together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.